Welcome to Talatera, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Maria Coriel Martin is a freelance artist and educator who travels to remote locations to document landscapes, people, and communities. This week, she leaves on her next big adventure to Alaska. Earlier this week, Maria took a break from packing to discuss her work. How did Maria become an expeditionary artist? What is the focus of her current project? How did she build her career and her audience? Let's find out. Maria, thank you so much. This is a very busy week for you. Thank you for taking the time to stop by and chat as before you embark on your next adventure. If you could introduce yourself to listeners. Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, my name is Maria Coriel Martin, and I'm an expeditionary artist. And one thing I always like to encourage people is they can make up their own job title. Uh, I came up with Being an expeditionary artist while I was still in college, I went to Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. I'm born and raised in Seattle. But I developed my idea of being an expeditionary artist based on my passion for art, science, and education, and then also learning about the history of artists whose role um, was to travel and explore and paint and help to record where their work was really a mix of um, being artists and scientists and often cartographers. There's this real ground of natural history that inspired me, the idea of work by hand, helping to, to share our experiences. And so um, I, uh, as an expeditionary artist, my work has a few different sort of components. My passion really is going into the field and collaborating with scientists to help tell their stories. And especially with climate change, I've been focused on the polar and glaciated regions for about 15 years now. And uh, so that's one aspect where I go into the field. I'm field sketching, taking audio recordings, playing a little bit with photography, develop this work in my studio for exhibit. And then I also have a big educational component. So I give workshops and presentations and work with school programs and to offer educator development. So there's a real strong education component for me in addition to the, the fine art. And then grown really organically out of this is this art toolkit project I have where I now manufacture and curate a line of field sketching supplies that are based on what I carry and use in the field. And that's been a real joy to develop. It's been uh, in the works now for nine years and um, really become a, a, a lot of fun for me. So that's a big parts of my work there. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I can say as the owner of your art toolkit and the mini palettes and now soon to be demi palettes, <laughs> um, <laughs> It's it's a very practical kit, and it is a lot of fun. And I think that's a wonderful thing that you do to introduce art to new audiences and to make it so accessible and also so fun. That's a big part of my mission. And for me, I've always loved the idea of just exploring the world through art. And I love to go out and sit and explore and really engage all my senses while I'm outside with my sketchbook 
and part of the art toolkit, my education part is I really want to empower and inspire other people as well with the tools and techniques to give them offer that experience for them as well. So not just something I get to do, but help others to empower, empower others to go outside with their tools. You traveled the world on the fellowship after college. And how did you select your locations? <laughs> yeah, well, Carleton College um, is part of a network of 50 colleges that can nominate students for what's called the Watson Fellowship. Um, it was founded by Thomas J. Watson, the founder of IBM, I think in 19... 19- 65 or 68. And um, the idea behind the fellowship is for select students to follow their dreams around the world. And there's there's general rules, uh, which is it can't be academically affiliated with an academic institution. Uh, you have to leave your home country and the United States for uh, a year. So you can't go home. And so they, they really want you to push yourself and explore something you're passionate about. And so I knew I really wanted to go explore various remote regions. And so part of my um, dream was taking a look at a map and trying to find various far-flung spots where I might want to paint and have uh, really dramatically different climates and environments. So I began with French Polynesia, the Marquesas Islands, which are in the middle of the South Pacific. And then my uh, next spot was Tibet, wanting to get up to the Western um, uh, high Tibetan Plateau, followed by uh, Mali, West Africa, where I'd done some study abroads in college, um, studying French and culture uh, and local languages. I wanted to go visit the Tuareg in uh, the Sahel. And then finally, I originally was going to go to Baffin Island, and then a scientist friend of mine helped inspire me to go to Greenland instead, which is where I finished my fellowship. The work that you created for this one year, did you, was it on exhibition? I- is it online? Oh, that's a terrific question. I may still have some field sketches on my website. And I, I uh, <laughs> we've had a new website and it works for years. Uh, I'll have to take a little review and maybe I can send you a link. Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, I had uh, more exhibits related to it. And that fellowship was in 2004, 2005. Um, and I did have one of my first exhibitions on that trip where I had a museum residency in Greenland, the Oparnovic Museum on the Northwest Coast. So they gave me a residency and I had my own show before I left, which was was really lovely, inspired by observing the spring melt of the, the sea ice and my, my experiences exploring the region. Every time I've gone to your website, and, and you know, of course I get your newsletter, my impression is that you've been a freelance artist and educator this entire time. Is that correct? And if it so, why did you choose to be a freelance? <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, you know, I was on my fellowship, um, you know, traveling the world for a year, and I came home and kind of had this, or even anticipating coming home time yet, this existential crisis of, um, I don't want to stop doing my project of exploring remote regions through art. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. And, and so coming home, um, I came home, spent one night with my parents, and my brother immediately invited me out to um, live with him on Bainbridge Island, where he had um, very low rent on kind of a house-sitting gig and said, you don't want to come out, and there's an extra little studio apartment where you can sleep. And I said, that sounds like a great idea. So from the start, I had very low overhead, which helped me with this sort of freelance lifestyle. But it wasn't really a conscious thought of, you know, I'm not going to go get a job. It was just, I'm going to continue doing my work. And one way or another, um, cobble together, you know, income out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you've managed to be able to 
keep doing what you're doing, which is fantastic. You participated in fairs and you teach workshops and you create exhibitions and you've experimented with several models of sustainability. Uh, are there any models that you no longer do? Any venues or events that you no longer do? Oh, quite a few. And, you know, starting out, I want to say that I have a really terrific, both supportive family and network of creative friends. And so coming back from my Watson Fellowship, a lot of us would try and do work together. Um, in particular, there's some remarkable um, multimedia storytellers uh, named Benj uh, Drummond and Sarah Joy Steele. And my husband, Darren, um, is a web developer. And so the three of us would often be collaborating in various ways on projects where Benj and Sarah might hire me for some illustration or work with Darren on the web. Um, and other friends of mine would hire me for some graphic design. So using my network of creative friends uh, really helped me with some of the initial, like, how am I going to make money? Because they, you know, we'd, we'd have little paychecks coming in and out. And since then, you know, I, I stopped advertising graphic design a long time ago. I stopped, for the most part, taking commissions. I used to do more commissioned paintings. Um, I used to do oil painting, in fact, and sold all my oil paints about 10 years ago to really focus on watercolor, which was really much more aligned with my my vision and values. And uh, yeah, cobbled in art fairs and, and found that sort of encouraged me to do a certain type of work that I wasn't as interested in. But I did some for, you know, I don't know, three to five years. I used to take more teaching gigs. I'm not never a full-time gig, but those really helped with my income for a period of time. So I think early in every person's career, you know, you need to balance what's going to make you money and what's going to move you forward professionally. And I was doing a lot of searching. I didn't have a, a template to follow for what is going to be my, my work. So I had to feel that out for myself and um, what felt more sustainable. Of the activities that you do now, uh, how do they advance your work and your mission as a science communicator? That's a great question. I'd say slowly over the years, I have been shifting from doing as much direct teaching towards also wanting to um, do curricular develop, uh, curriculum development and educator training as well, um, so that it's not just based on me and my time, because <laughs> I'm really passionate about wanting to share these tools. Uh, I have whole workshops based around tools for observation that I believe in, but um, I can't be in every encounter that I'd like to be. Um, so I'd say I, that's been a shift I've been been making. And so finding opportunities where there's that science art overlap and that art can be a hook to help particularly kids engaged with science has been, been a passion for me. So there's um, programs, uh, one elementary school in Seattle, where we've been really integrating nature journaling throughout their whole program now, um, environmental learning centers, and then um, through the exhibitions where I live, finding through presentations and exhibits, opportunities for the general public to have conversations around the subjects that I, that I present. Thank you for sharing the link for the presentation that you gave for Girls Can Do. It's a great synopsis of just how adventurous you are <laughs> in a bit <laughs> and how, how you put yourself out there. And as you said earlier, you, you encourage people to create their own job titles. And so how did you learn to do this for yourself? This really goes way back for me uh, to growing up. And one in first grade kindergarten, I just remember my mom helping t 
talk to me about how to make friends. And she just said, just put your hand out and say, hi, my name's Maria. What's yours? So there's this fundamental part of me from a very young age that practiced just introducing myself and having the courage to just go up no matter the person and just say, hi, here I am. And I've found 99% of the time, everyone I meet is both, you know, generous, compassionate, supportive, and often, you know, wants to help one way or another. And so um, in terms of asking for what I want, I think first it becomes, you know, it's based in the courage of just reaching out and not being afraid to, to talk to, you know, strangers or send out that email to introduce yourself to someone. And, you know, worst comes to worst, <laughs> someone will say no or, you know, won't, won't get a response. Um, but that, that's where I, I really learned from a, a very young age. And I'll add to that in college, I had a really supportive, some really supportive deans and um, professors where if I would come up with an idea of something I wanted to do, instead of saying no, they'd say, okay, let's think of where we can fund funding. How can this be possible? And actually, when I think I was a sophomore, they said, you know, you just need a Watson fellowship. <laughs> so we'll try, we'll try and see if that can work out. I think they had my entire, their eye on me and planted that idea early on. So I was able to um, apply for and receive some grants to help me with my travels. And that helped build my confidence for thinking, hey, you know, this isn't totally nuts. People, people are interested and excited about it. And, you know, it, it can take courage to ask, but it doesn't hurt to ask. I recommend everyone, everyone to do it. And there's value too in putting together proposals and articulating your ideas because when you write them down and are whether or not say you get funding, you've done the legwork of articulating exactly what you really want and how you want to do it. And so I find huge value in just like putting together uh, you know proposals, articulating my ideas and my vision because then it gives me the the groundwork to build on. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Writing brings much clarity. (laughs) (laughs) When you tell people that you are an expeditionary artist, what is their reaction? Because it's, (laughs) it's really kind of an, I want to say old world type concept, you know, to go on an expedition, that word anyway, it conjures up that type of thinking. And so Mm -hmm. what are people's reactions? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, they usually raise their eyebrows. <laughs> and I mean, I have to say, too, I've been in an interesting situation now. Um, I moved from my hometown of Seattle to a local town, a um, little town 40 miles north called Port Townsend, which is really lovely. My family and I have been here for three years. Um, so I'm married and I now have a four-year-old daughter. So I'll say, you know, in this town, I'm mostly Stella's mom. And people are slowly figuring out that I, I do more than run around and bike all over <laughs> town with a little a little kid. Um, so I had my first big exhibit here this winter, and it felt like my coming out party. Oh, this is, this is what I do. <laughs> so I was, you know, I'm, I'd say I'm on a, a big expedition once a year or every other year. And I, I do spend a lot of time in my studio, and you know, which is our um, extra large spare room in our house. And you know, um, I, I also lead a very quiet life in my my little world at home. What is the expedition that you're going on this week? This week, I'm heading up to Utkiavik, which is formerly Barrow on the North Slope in the Arctic of Alaska, to take a boat out to a little island called Cooper Island, which is 25 miles offshore, to join scientist, biologist George Devoki. And I'll be 
working with a science collaborator, educator, excuse me, friend of mine, Katie Morrison, from um, who I met through a school in Seattle uh, years ago. And George has been studying guillemots, a seabird on this island now for 45 years. This is his 45th consecutive summer. And over this period, it's, he's got this remarkable extended data set and has observed terrific changes biologically, uh, changes with the, the birds and their diets and the population. There's the, the climate data, the atmospheric data. And then there's also his personal experiences of the changes the island has gone through with the warming climate over these past 45 years. So it's really, he's a remarkable man. And it's a remarkable story that Katie and I are working to help share through art. How will you document this change, this 45-year change, as you will be there for, for two weeks? Will you, you, you work live in place, and, but will you also be painting from photographs and from historical records as well? Yeah, that's a great question, Tanya. I envision this as at least a two-year project. So uh, in the field, field work for me is really an opportunity to gather. You can imagine me kind of as a scientist gathering data. I'm I'm collecting all my impressions. I call it my palette of place, um, my colors, my experiences, sketching, audio. Uh, We'll be also interviewing both George and other influential people with the project while, while up in the region, Katie and myself. So I'll be mostly sketching everything I see and experience as quickly as possible. (laughs) Coming home to my studio will be a chance to begin to process everything. And right now we're, we're exploring possibilities for exhibitions in 2020 where we can bring together and give me time to develop studio work and put together vignettes for presentations and the web. Um, And Katie and I also have the vision of a children's story that uh, we'd like to put together. So there's, there's a lot in the works and the field work is the foundation for it all. So down the road in the studio, I may very well work some from historical photos, satellite data. I'm not sure yet. Uh, I have to go up to the field yeah, at first and, um, and see where that work leads me. Yeah. You know, an exhibition next year with this data set and his story, I think it would be especially important in the fact that it is Earth Day's 50th anniversary next year. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big story for a, a landmark anniversary. Oh, thanks for bringing that to my attention. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of that, but that was that's a, that's a nice synchronicity. I have a painting question, mm-hmm. <laughs> if I may ask. You paint with a lot of white, white and light grays and soft blues and soft grays. You know, I don't want you to give away any secrets, but do you have your own favorite mix or do you not mix your grays and your whites and your blues until you're actually in place? So I usually, I have what's called a limited palette I use, especially in my studio. So I have about four to five colors that many of my paintings are painted with the same set. Um, so it's like they, they have, there's harmony throughout the, the body of work and it's also inspired from my field time. Uh, I do love the quiet of grays. The atmosphere. A lot of what I'm trying to capture in my work in the studio is um, the emotional sense of regions and create a little window to these places that I hope can can be a point of empathy for people to become interested. And I'll, I'll say a little background. When I a big influence in me becoming an artist was living in Tokyo, Japan, with my family when I was in sixth grade for seven months. 
and my father was teaching there and I lived down the street from a traditional paintbrush, calligraphy brush maker. And so I paint almost predominantly with his paintbrushes, um, which he we're still in touch today. Feels a bit like my fairy art godfather. And I think Japan has influenced me with some of the aesthetics of quiet and space, um, which so much of their art tradition does beautifully. What you can, how you can say more with less at times. And ever since college, I've been fascinated by the sense of whiteout environments, these grays, this um, shifting space and, and skies. So I'd say I've been sort of chasing that for a long time. Mm-hmm. The handmade brushes that you use, and I've, you've demonstrated in one of the things that you shared with me, does it make it more able for you to create certain effects than the standard brushes that people usually have access to? I honestly don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, because, uh, no, I'd say I use some very large hake brushes, which are uh, wide, flat, soft brushes. And they're, they're widely available. You don't need to have um, a, a special friend making them by hand in Japan to, to get them. So I'd say that's something I do use in my techniques, that, especially for my large paintings. Um, otherwise, otherwise, I'd say it's just what I'm, I'm used to. But you can do terrific things with other paintbrushes as well. I just, I'm just not as practiced with them. Mm-hmm. How do you turn a small sketch into a large exhibition piece? So when I work in my studio... There's a few uh, different routes for me to develop work that I exhibit. Sometimes my field work is just ready for exhibit and I'm put in a frame and it tells the story as is. Sometimes I have pieces where I'm able to do like a full sketch of it um, or even just a complete, say, pencil drawing. But let's say it's too cold or the weather isn't permitting for me to really paint it properly the way I envision it. So then I'll have the full pencil study, I might even have all the color notes for. And then in my studio, I can literally trace that to a fresh sheet of paper and paint it where it feels very true to the field. And then other times, I'll have my sketches and my notes and photographs, which I'll use for reference as well that I've taken and create whole new pieces based on my experience. You've had the wonderful opportunity to be encouraged in college to secure funding, and you've had lots of experience in writing grants. So how do you fund your travels today? Do you always start with a grant? And how do people find you? Yeah, I think funding is a puzzle. And past expeditions both have come up now um, through, you know, persistence and long-term vision. (laughs) Um, And through having a network of people that I've built over the years so one project that my friend and biologist Kristen Lydra and I did together, uh, Imaging the Arctic, we had funding for two years from a foundation in New York. We were originally planning to apply for a NASA outreach grant, but right at the last minute, the, the budget was announced from the government and, and NASA dropped the request for fund um, proposals as the, the budget didn't quite allow it. Um, and so we fortunately had a a connection to this foundation who generously funded us. Other expeditions, uh, I was able to go down to Antarctica um, (laughs) to to a a friend um, on a ship with an extra berth who called me up and said, Maria, you want to come with me and be a guest artist? And I've got enough frequent flyers to fly you down. 
I said, oh my goodness. She said, let me know within 24 hours. So <laughs> I was new, newly pregnant at the time. And I said, this sounds like fun. <laughs> and uh, I said, yes, um, it's gone for a month. Um, this current project, I'm extremely grateful to my community of supporters who have actually given me enough private sponsorships to cover my base uh, travel expenses and my essential equipment for the field work. And I'm um, looking to apply for some additional grants to help cover some of our exhibit expenses. But uh, I'm, um, I'm really grateful to the, the supporters. So one thing I do is um, send people postcards from the field at certain sponsorship levels and, and have some other, other things I give um, to, to folks who'd like to become a sponsor. And mm-hmm. so that's helping make this trip possible. Yes. And so you're still seeking sponsors for this trip or is? Oh, what? I'll still, um, <laughs> uh, all sponsors get a postcard from the field. So um, I'm, I'm accepting sponsors, I think through Friday. Okay. Then, if you'd like a postcard, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm open to, to all support. Um, it it uh, means a lot to me and helps make my work possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. How did you build your audience? Did you start off with an email list? Was it your blog came first? Did you do a newsletter first? How did this all come to be? Yeah, I started my mailing list right back when I first came back from my um, Watson Fellowship in 2005. And I put together a presentation and rented a room at REI and invited everyone I knew to come um, to an evening presentation and sort of art little art show. I framed up some of my pieces and brought my sketches and used my extended network through family and friends. And ever since then, I've always had a book where people at any event can leave their email and a name and, and join my list. And I think it's a really valuable way to stay connected with people. And I always encourage people to maintain a mailing list. I think there's other ways to follow and stay connected these days with, say, Instagram or Facebook. But a mailing list is really personal. And I just love that I've been able to, to stay connected and maintain correspondences with people for, for like 15 years now and, and continue to grow it. Um, so I'd say through events and, you know, have a sign up on my website and through my art toolkit project, it's slowly, slowly grown. Yeah. Do more people come to go to your blog or do more people come to you through Facebook? That's a great question. I think I tend to be, um, I've been growing more active on Instagram and I do try to blog about once a month. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Motherhood is a whole other conversation. (laughs) And um, I'd say really slowed down some of my work on the whole blogging front um, for a couple of years. And uh, I'm kind of re-engaging with all that. And that's that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'll ask you a question that I ask many of my guests. What is your earliest memory of enjoying nature? Oh, that's a terrific question. I've never been asked that before. Um, oh, it's hard for me to pinpoint just one. We have a, my parents' house has a terrific garden. So I spent a lot of time running around outside in the garden and exploring our whole neighborhood. I have a memory of going out hiking with my family, <laughs> not wanting to walk, I think, you know, them having to pick me up. But um, when I think about that question, just what comes to mind is the, the, the emerald green of, you know, being out in the grass and listening to water. Um, the, the Northwest is really in my system of our salt water and evergreen trees and mountains that I've really grown up with and um, continues to be part of what 
makes me feel at home. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also when did you realize nature was important to you? Was, was it something that you came to over time or was it an event that made you something that you responded to? Well, my big influence uh, uh, or steps towards becoming an outdoor educator really began in two places. One was through a horse camp. And I did a lot of camp when I was little in the summers, loved horses. And becoming a you know, counselor in training and then a counselor helped give me, I think, the gumption to <laughs> stand up in front of crowds and do ridiculous things, whether singing or skits <laughs> and leading around you know, the younger kids. And then in uh, high school, we had a really active outdoor education program where we'd go through as students and then become the, um, the educators. And that began with wilderness survival building. Back then, we'd do little fern, um, little, little fern shelters to spend the night in, practicing bivying, alpine travel courses, and um, first aid courses. And a number of us did the local search and rescue training, so be, being part of search and rescue. And, uh, and in high school, it was really exciting to do all that. And gave us a chance to explore our local mountains and water. We did sea kayaking too, scuba diving, um, which is very cold in Puget Sound. We had a marine science trip where we went down to Hawaii, which is a little more pleasant for that. But I'd say having those experiences as a high schooler, it was a confidence builder. And I really fell in love with sort of the exuberance you could have outdoors and the passion for learning yeah, all the neat little things, paying attention to the flowers and the trees and, and learning to read maps. And um, I was, my parents were more comfortable letting me go off backpacking with friends for three nights than, you know, staying out past 9 p.m. in the city. <laughs> <laughs> Today, you know, so many people live in an urban environment where nature is, it's, well, it's a mix. It's not so prevalent, but then it also is prevalent if you, you know, if you look or if you encourage people to look at what is occurring in the, in the urban environment. What do you think would help make connections between people and nature? Well, that's why I love sketching and that idea of exploring the urban wild. And one thing I've observed over the past, you know, 10 plus years is the um, development and enthusiasm for the urban sketching movement, which was founded, the Urban Sketchers was founded by a, a fellow in Seattle, Gabby Campionero, where now there's chapters, urban sketching chapters all around the world. So um, if there's not one in your local, local town, you could explore starting it, where people are going out and sketching, spending time away from screens, exploring whether the buildings are going to parks. And I find that is just such a wonderful tool to unplug and slow down. And, and in my work, both in my work and what I do with the art toolkit is this idea of art as a tool versus a talent. It's a tool for observation, exploration, scientific inquiry, meditation, reflection, unplug, and um, <laughs> ultimately also just to have fun, exploring kind of delighting in color and line and uh, letting go of the idea of perfection, but having a place to to mess around and um, awaken your senses in a fresh way. Is there anything that you'd like to tell other independent educators who are out working in their communities? Well, I think just when I think about independent educators, I just think, one, it's such important, terrific work to be doing that there's so many ways to reach people outside of like the K through 12 system or formal institutions. And, um, and often 
it can be one teacher who can have a momentous impact on a person's life and inspiring them to see something a little bit differently. And for me, I had um, had numerous people like that over my life, but one was my first grade teacher whose words uh, I'll never forget just telling me that a creative person is never bored. And she was passionate about peace and love and science and um, having a really open heart and open eyes and, and, and going out into the world. Um, so I'd say, you know, one way or another, if you're passionate about something, you can find a way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, try and try and support yourself. I think I'll add one more thing too, Tanya, mm-hmm. which is I've made choices in my work about where I earn my money. And for me, I don't want to rely on the sale of my paintings to be my income. It creates a certain pressure for me and the type of work I create and, and my creative vision. Uh, and so that to me isn't something I'm, I'm looking at needing you know, a really reliable income out of. And so I've put together a career where I've had other supportive elements for that. And in being an independent educator and freelance, you can decide, you know, it's not a compromise if you need one part-time gig to help support something else you love. Um, it's about finding just what feels true to yourself and um, as, you, as you put together what, what fits your vision. Since we're on this topic, you know, part of being a freelancer is finding, finding better clients. I don't, you don't have to identify anybody, but I'm just, in general, how, how have you found better clients? Well, that's a good question. I'd say before gigs, especially when I was starting out, I'd ask myself some questions. And those three questions for me, and these questions might be different for you, are um, one, if I'm looking to consider a gig or working with someone, will it make me money? You know, we all have bills. Two, will it build my audience? Is it something that's going to grow my work in a positive way? And related to this is three, will it build my brand? Will it continue to support me in what I'm doing and envision doing and maybe introduce me? You know, I might say that in a way like um, thinking about network as well. And so that way, I don't have to have every gig fulfill all three questions. I'll do things where they won't make me any money because I really believe in it and it'll build my audience and support my, my brand and network of, uh, of expeditionary art. Um, and so that, that's been helpful for me over the years to make choices about who I want to work with and directions I want to go. Yeah, those are very good questions. Thank you. Thank you for sharing them. Well, Maria, I will, I will let you go. Thank you so much for your time this morning and such a busy week. And I wish you much success over the next two weeks. Where can people follow you? Yep, they can follow me online on my website, expeditionaryart.com. And I'm also on Instagram. I have two accounts, at expeditionaryart and at arttoolkit. Okay. And uh, your posts from your next adventure will be on Expeditionary Art, most likely? Yep, most likely. Most likely. Okay. And on my, and on my website. Are you ready to follow Maria? Learn more about Maria's current project by visiting the show notes at talaterra.com. Look for the link to the article Witnessing Climate Change. 
You'll also find in the show notes Maria's presentation for the organization Girls Can Do, as well as her article about nature journaling with kids. And to review, you can follow Maria on Instagram at at Expeditionary Art and at at Art Toolkit. Talaterra is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion.